P.I.'s Declassified, an inside look at the world of private investigators. Your host is Francie Kaler, a noted private investigator. Francie and her guests take you behind the scenes and into the genuine, sometimes gritty business of investigation. You'll hear stories from the trenches with plenty of surprises. Here's your host, Francie Kaler. Good morning. Good morning. We're going to have such an interesting show this morning. We have a man here with us as my guest who just has the most interesting background and work. So I'd just like to introduce you right now to Carmen Ziegenbein. Hello, Carmen. Hello. How are you? Very, very, very good. So, Carmen, I, you know, I, we've never met before. I really know nothing about you except what I've read. Tell us about your background because it is so fascinating. Oh, my gosh. That's terrible. What am I going to say now? <laughs> <laughs> um, Just start at the beginning. Um, I was born. <laughs> I was born. No, no. Okay. Anyway. So, um, I started off with search engines in the 90s, so I'm pretty old, actually. That's terrible to say, too. But, yes, I started off in the 90s with search engines, and um, then my wife decided that um, we wanted to open up our own business, and somehow I fell into something like doing research, research in regards to, you know, internet profiles and stuff like this, creating a profile of a suspect, and it was really by accident that I ended up in there. And um, so it evolved more and more. So then after a while, we created a software called Tomoko Discovery so that we can capture actually the evidence, what we find online, that we can capture it and then pretty much hand it over to the judge as evidence or to law enforcement. And um, then it evolved even more where it came to cryptocurrency. And now pretty much the majority of our work is cryptocurrency related. So we're working on cases as consultant pretty much in regards to kidnapping, seizing cryptocurrency from crime scenes, mm. um, search warrants, um, how to seize this stuff, and we provide training classes as well. So meaning people can come here to St. Petersburg, Florida, where we're located, and they would come in, for example, for a five-day class on cryptocurrency investigation. And then if they want to, they do another five-day class in cryptocurrency investigation and forensics. And then we also go worldwide. So we were just in, recently we were in South Africa. Mm-hmm. and training SAPs, the South African Police Force, um, then also the Federal Reserve Bank, and then we're traveling pretty much around. So we're going to go to the UK now, we're going to Greece now to do a training, and then we're going to also nearby here at the universities. And then our third thing, what we do really right now, is which is kind of cool, is we're working now more because we, we're not really good in business things, actually. We're not great at selling things, but we like the research part. Mm-hmm. So we're working on more and more with universities together. So one of our partners is now um, Paris University in Big Rapids, Michigan, and they have a really great program. So we're doing some stuff with them together as well. That's so but that's it in a nutshell. So from somebody who has no idea about investigations, I'm almost the wrong person for the show, but I kind of like <laughs> keep doing these investigations. So I have no idea why and how, but it's just happening. Mm, yeah, fascinating. And so you're originally from Germany. Yes, born and raised in Germany, went to the military in Germany, speak fluent German, married to somebody from England. So my wife is from England, actually, and we both live in Florida in the United States. 
Oh, there you go. International international group there you've got. So, and uh, you spent some time in the, the uh, German army? Uh, yes, I was a combat medic. I was a terrible one. I only can do amputations <laughs> very well. So if you have a heart attack, don't even bother. <laughs> That, that, that's not really a good thing. <laughs> I know, I know. It was pretty bad. It was pretty bad. But that was the only thing I can do. So, so yes, I uh, was in the gym. Yes, go ahead. But you weren't a medical doctor. You just uh, were trained in amputations. <laughs> yeah, I was a, I would think of it like as a medic in the military. So where you go and you, it was more like a rescue thing. So mm-hmm. somebody is lost or is injured at the front line, then they fly you down there, you go down there. You pick this person up. It sounds better than it is because you're going to have to crawl like for 10 miles on the ground with that person on your back. So it's a pretty Ooh. awful job, actually. But it is also kind of like, you know, it's actually kind of nice because you're doing good things during, the, during that time. Um, but uh, I was pretty <laughs> And then terrible. you take one so, of their like, body parts. Yeah, yeah that's that great. was the only thing I was good at was the amputation. So if you and I could go injections, I was good at it too. Um, taking blood was all right too. But yeah, the rest, like for example, if you have a heart attack, you're pretty much dead if you cross my path because I have no idea. I never made it work. So yep, that's me. Okay, all right. So so are you a licensed investigator, Carmen? No, I'm not an investigator at all. At all. So what we really do is we do research. So it's everything is online pretty much. So we don't go outside okay. and investigate anything. Um, we tell them how to do it. So okay. anything that comes across like electronics, like for example, they trying to they want to go on a crime scene. They have a search warrant. Let's say for law enforcement, for example, and they don't know what to do with the cryptocurrency or even where to find the cryptocurrency. Then we pretty much tell them where to find it, how to do it, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Or if it's a case in regards to um, Facebook, Twitter, things like that. So we're more like research and software or research and technology, maybe, mm-hmm. um, but not private investigators. But we often work with private investigators as well. So we have a large circle of friends that are all private investigators. Yeah, very interesting. So, um, hmm. so let's, let's define cryptocurrency. Oh, gosh, this is getting even worse, this show. Cryptocurrency. <laughs> now, okay, so, so you have fiat money. So fiat is pretty much the cash that you have in your hand when you go outside and you buy something at the grocery store. You give them fiat or you give them cash or you use your credit card. Now, cryptocurrency is a little bit different. Cryptocurrency is considered like a digital asset. So um, it is like the most famous one uh, is probably Bitcoin in this case. So everybody pretty much knows Bitcoin. Um, and Bitcoin is, um, think of it, cryptocurrency. It's an entry in a, in, in a book, in a ledger that you have in an accounting book where it says this person has that and that much money. So if we think about um, cryptocurrency as, um, as an asset, oh gosh, it's hard to explain over the phone, but if we think about it as an asset, um, it's something you can buy, but that does not exist. So it's, it's untouchable. You can't touch it. If you remember, like in these old Western movies where you see somebody gets some land and then they just, there's this old guy, he stands there most likely at the train station and he rents down, for example, okay, you own now this parcel. This is pretty much what cryptocurrency is. But what it does is it writes it down into the blockchain. So which, you know, and the blockchain now, everybody talks about the blockchain a lot right now. But the blockchain is an old thing. Everything that is related to cryptocurrency, all the technology that's associated to it and is being used there, is pretty much old stuff. It's nothing is really new. Like um, blockchain is from the 90s. 
Um, well, I don't know what smart block- contracts. I don't know what like. blockchain is. What is blockchain? Oh, blockchain is blockchain is like think of this ledger. This have maybe you have seen that movie, The Untouchables. They had this accountant from what was the guy? Oh, Al Capone, where he was running around with a little book to hide all the stuff that that um, that uh, all the things that um, Al Capone was paying off to the people. Uh-huh. So it's like an accounting book, the blockchain, where there's always an entry. So let's say you purchase, for example, you exchange five dollars into Bitcoin then there will be an entry in the blockchain. And the fascinating thing with the blockchain is all of the transactions from the beginning on, and each cryptocurrency has its own blockchain. But all of the, for example, if you just think about Bitcoin, all the transactions that ever happen on that blockchain for crypto, for Bitcoin are all in there. And you can actually all download them with the software. So you could have actually on your computer, the whole blockchain means the whole accounting thing for all of the transactions that happen within Bitcoin. So and that's kind of like a fascinating thing. The, some of the most important things for cryptocurrency is, um, is the other words, um, centralization, decentralization. So for the, for the ones that are not too familiar with these terms, so if something is centralized, your bank, for example, is centralized. So your bank, for example, you give them money, but you have to trust them because you don't really know what's happening with that money. Mm-hmm. You, don't, you can't see everything in there. Now, in a decent, and the bank has always authority, so the bank has pretty much the last word on it. If you say, I give you $1,000, they say, no, you give me 500 what are you going to do? So now, mm-hmm. decentralized is different, and Bitcoin works decentralized, means there's no authority there. So nobody is in charge, and that's the amazing thing, but it's also the bad thing, because nobody is in charge. That's usually a problem, especially when we talk about people. People that have no guidance or no rules, and there's always something happening. So, so decentralized means in this case, there's, there's no, no one entity in charge. There's no person or no bank or no country in charge. And um, centralized means there's one entity always in charge. It could be the government. It could be a bank, a financial institution, etc. Now, decentralized has also like a, like, a, like a big plus point. If we think about, now I'm getting worse, if we think about Ethereum as another cryptocurrency. Um, what is it, what is it called? Ethereum. Ethereum, so okay. It's called Ethereum, yes. It's called Ethereum. It's another cryptocurrency, but it functions a little bit different. It, is, um, it functions, it uses a lot of smart contracts. So like a regular cryptocurrency, and you have to also think about cryptocurrency in general, they're not always money. They're like, think of them as startups. So if anybody of you knows that have ever seen a startup, a startup is a complete myth. It's a guy or a couple of guys that smoke pot and want to open up a tech business. Then they're going to borrow some money somewhere, and it's all going to go down from there. Now, and it's really wild, and this is really how cryptocurrency is. So most people thinking of one cryptocurrency is Bitcoin, but there are more than 2,600 cryptocurrencies out there. Mm. Now, if we, think about, if we think about, yeah, in the cryptocurrency, if we think about Bitcoin, it's more than 50% of the market, and now it shares, and then after that, it's Ethereum, and then a couple other ones, but it shares pretty much. You know, roughly 55% is the other 2,600 cryptocurrencies that are out there. So you see the market really concentrates on that. And now Facebook is bringing one out too. And Bitcoin, of course, is going to get more and more popular. But going back to Ethereum, Ethereum uses this thing that's called smart contracts. And um, these smart contracts, they're kind of really cool. They're almost like an if statement. So if I do this, you do that. Um, smart contracts are often used for malware, for example. You might, may have not know or read somewhere or saw in a movie where somebody's taking over somebody else's computer and they say, hey, you've got to pay me now $5 or $500 and you're gonna, can, you can get back and use your computer. If you don't pay, mm-hmm. they boom and everything goes away. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Now, this is a great concept of smart contracts. A smart contract, there's nobody sitting there who does this all. They just set up pretty much like a, like, um, like these function, these functions up there, or these happenings, these things that are going to happen up in there. It says in a smart contract, for example, it would say, when the user opens up the computer, show the screen where it says, wow, I do not let you do anything anymore. Pay me money. And the next thing is after he saw that screen, the next thing would be, would we be written in the smart contract? Now we are going to ask for money and here's our Bitcoin address or whatever address on Monero or whatever we want. Monero is another cryptocurrency. Whatever you want to have in there. Now, the next thing in that smart contract is if you pay this person, so I'm going to make the transaction now into that address, my smart contract can access the blockchain and then it can pretty much say, okay, I was accessed, the money went over there and then I'm going to release the computer. There's, so there's nobody sitting there really and doing all these things. It's all automated. Now, while <laughs> this is a bad purpose for a smart contract, and I know it's kind of sound all kind of difficult, but this is kind of like a bad purpose. Now, a good purpose for a smart contract could be a self-driving car. Now, what is also with decentralized and cryptocurrencies such as Bitcoin, you could have, and let's say in this case, we would use Ethereum. I mean, if we use Ethereum, we could have actually an AI owning or uh, uh, being the owner of a self-driving car. So the AI, not a person would own it, but the AI would own it, own it. And the AI could actually generate revenue and it could be like this. When the user, for example, books the car online or stops it at the street, opens the door, this is one part of the contract. Then the contract starts, this, this digital contract that we have in there, how the application okay. runs. And now the person sits down and puts his credit card in there. Now the second step in there is in there. Now the person says the location where they want to go to, third one. Now the car drives to that location, and we have the fourth one. When the doors don't open until the car goes charged, and then we're at the fifth, sixth, one, seventh one, and the person is out, and the application, in this case, the, um, the software application, the AI in this case, and the car itself would have generated revenue. Now, that software could say, now, hey, we need an oil change, so, and it reaches out to an oil change company and says, hey, we would like to schedule an oil change. It doesn't do it by phone. It does it via the computer, for example, via the Internet. And these, all these things are, are possible with smart contracts. You could buy easily, for example, you could try right now if you have iTunes and you have like a bunch of movies and your wife is yelling at you why you bought all these movies, you want to get rid of them. <laughs> um, kind of hard to do, but with smart contracts, that would be good too. And even via smart contracts, the blockchain, etc., you could just say, hey, okay, I'm going to give it now to you, for example, and you give me $500 and then you're going to take over from there. And then all these iTunes movies are going to be assigned to you, and they are yours. It makes things that very easy. That is unbelievable. That is just yes, unbelievable. So it so, makes things so easy. To, so to bring this down to a really simple concept, when you were talking about um, the uh, uh, self-driving car, when when you go to a hotel and you want to use one of their computers. And you have to use your credit card, and it won't do anything until you put your credit card in. It's that same kind of thing. Yes, that's kind of like the same thing, the same idea behind it. All these the self-serving things can be like this. Yeah. So they so, do only an action if you do an action, et cetera, et cetera. So when you're using Ethereum, where does it, where does it go to? Who does it go to? <laughs> it goes again into the... Think of it like this big nirvana. It goes into the blockchain again. So like I said That's in the beginning, it's, there, is no, there is no real bank or entity that holds the funds. 
for this money or whatever it is in this case, for Ethereum, it's tokens, for example, or Ether. Um, but if you think about it, it's just an entry in a book. Think of it always to keep it really basic. You buy, a, you buy one of these paper notebooks and you write in there today's date, then the, the, the amount of money that you have and the amount of money that you get or send somewhere, and that's all what it is. That's pretty much the blockchain in, in really basic terms. So it doesn't exist anywhere. There's nothing you can touch. It just is not there. It's pretty much just an entry thing. So it's just being written in there into this book, and that's all what it is. So which makes us also very dangerous if, think of this, all this whole blockchain would blow up, which is kind of hard because the blockchain is like a P2P, so meaning it is um, decentralized, meaning lots of computers have it, and you could even have the blockchain on yours and share it with others, for example. And it's called a NOT, but we're not even going to go there. It's going to be too crazy. But um, everybody has the blockchain, can have the blockchain on their computer and help doing these transactions that are happening. So if I want to send a Bitcoin to you, then somebody else's computer might help doing that transaction. So whoever has that software in there and it's becoming a full kind of like nod in this case. Um, so there's, there's a lot of different, and there's a lot of, there's much more behind it. So I'm just going to try to simplify it as good as it gets. Well, I appreciate but, that because um, I know nothing about this and I'm sure a lot of my listeners do not either. So, so what does a Bitcoin look like? Uh, Bitcoin, uh, it doesn't look like anything. It's just an entry into the book. Now, if you like, um, if you think about the very basics, the idea behind Bitcoin was that, that there's no authority behind it. So people were not happy with the bank. There were high transaction fees, for example. Um, if you want to do an international transaction, it costs a lot of money. Um, the time that it takes. When Bitcoin in the beginning shortened that all, and, and cryptocurrencies in general are shortening that time. But the problem is, the reality, these things are not built for, you know, not built for a lot of transactions. They can't handle a lot of transactions. So meaning like, for example, Bitcoin can, if I send you, for example, I make a Bitcoin transaction, I send you some money in Bitcoin. Um, so as a cryptocurrency, I send you like $50 in Bitcoin, for example. It can take five minutes, but it could take a whole day. So the system sometimes gets so bogged down, it's just crazy and the money doesn't go through. Now, the second thing is I can accelerate that whole thing, but then, again, this is not very mainstream-friendly right now. I could use an accelerator, and I take my transaction ID, and I go to one of these miners. And these miners are kind of like, think of them uh, like, they're also accountants. They say, okay, I confirm this, uh, this transaction. And it's like, they're kind of like puzzle builders. So they're confirming and they're looking at this transaction, and they say, okay, this looks kind of all right to me, and that's good to go. So you can go now to these different places and say, hey, I want to have my transaction going faster through, but this usually doesn't work for the free ones. So you would have to get a paid service. Now you see like the whole idea of Bitcoin is kind of like going down a little bit down the tubes right now because the system is just overwhelmed. So it's just too many things, too many transactions happening, and it just slows down more and more. Also, the transaction fees are different. When we think about Bitcoin was initially done that you can transact worldwide, and that you have, you know, hardly any fees, so the fees are being kept low. Now, if I make a transaction from here, from the United States, and I'm here and I'm using Coinbase or any other application, which is pretty much the easiest on Coinbase, um, then it can take, you know, it can take five minutes, 10 minutes, etc. Now, if uh, and it could cost me maybe $5, $10, $0.50, it's, it can be, the amount is also, the transaction fee is always different. If I do one now, it might be a dollar. If I do one in 10 minutes, 
10 minutes later, it might be $1.50. 20 minutes later, it might be $3. And then it goes down to 10 cents, for example. Now, with these transaction fees, they are, they are constantly changing. The time is not very solid either. So meaning like, I cannot say this money is going to arrive in five minutes. It can arrive now or it can arrive in a week or in, in a day, for example. Now, the other cryptocurrencies... We try to address, let, me address let me interrupt you, Carmen. Yes? So does that arrive as money or as Bitcoin or as Ethereum? So that's a very good question. So now for the general public, the general public would pretty much go to Coinbase.com and set up an account. Coinbase is like an exchange where you can take your fiat, your regular money, and then pretty much get Bitcoin. So now there you would buy Bitcoin. Okay, so I would connect it to my bank account, put $50, $100 into this Coinbase account. And then I would pretty much um, buy myself. I can buy any cryptocurrency, but I would buy Bitcoin for this, for this example. Now, this Bitcoin, I'm going to send now to you. You have also a Coinbase account, and I'm going to send it to you now. It's always being sent in Bitcoin. So I can, I can cash out and make a transaction and send it out as USD. But if I send Bitcoin, it's going to arrive at your place as Bitcoin. And then you would have to, if you want to make cash out of it, you would have to exchange it. And then you have to pay an exchange fee. Now, these fees are, again, different. So United States kind of low. But if I go to South Africa, for example, we ran into this issue that for, if you want to buy for $8,000 Bitcoin, we had to pay a fee for almost $2,000. So it comes down almost to $10,000. So you're already like, Bitcoin was at that time, was at around 8000 And for that time, so we would be $2,000 already in minus. So the whole idea, the concept is not working 100%, but the idea itself is a great idea because it can really make things fast. We're just a little bit slowed down by the technology currently. Okay, so Carmen... <laughs> You've got to walk me through this because I'm a visual person, so I have to be able to visualize okay. what you're talking about. So... Um, so if you and I are working on a transaction together, walk me through what that would look like. So you are now the party on the other side, right? And then I'm going to send you some money. So okay. what I do first is, <clears throat> and what I, what, I, what I probably have to should also explain. Yeah, okay, I'm going to explain that first. So, so you're on the other side. Now, we both have a Coinbase account. Let's do it like this. We both go to Coinbase.com. We sign up for an account to keep it really easy. Then we connect our personal bank accounts to Coinbase. Then we're going to put $100 into the Coinbase account. After that, we're going to purchase. We take these $100 that are in this account, and we can go to a field where it says, I think, buy or uh, purchase cryptocurrency or something like that. And then we're going to purchase, um, let's say, Bitcoin for these $100. And then mm -hmm. there's always a fee, I don't know, a couple of dollars fee in there. Now, we both have this purchase. If we use Coinbase, it's going to take us, I think they're holding the money or they're holding it for seven days until you can transfer it, three to seven days, I think. And I'm not 100% probably accurate with that, but it's going to be a couple of days they're holding it. After these couple of days are over, let's say you're saying, I would like to have $50 from you, Jürgen and or Carmen, and then um, I would just send it over there. I would just put it in, go, go to my Coinbase account. I would put, um, go to the send item. And I would put um, $50, and then I would ask you, you would give me your address in this case, and then I would send it to your address. Now, an account that we have is, um, so when you think about a cryptocurrency account or a cryptocurrency wallet where you hold, where you kind of hold your funds in there, it's not really a wallet. So a lot of people thinking of it as a wallet. If you take your, you have probably a keychain, right? 
with a bunch of keys on it. Mm-hmm. So the ring that you have, think of that as your wallet, and then the keys that are on there that are actually keys. So a cryptocurrency, when you want to transfer money, you have a couple of different things. You have a private key, you have um, a public key, and then you have an address. Forget the public key. Just think about the, um, the private key and the address. The private key that you receive if you sign up for something, or you can even create your own private keys offline. So when you do that, when you have your private key, um, the private key you want to hold on to yourself. Whoever has the private key owns the funds that are associated to that private key. Okay. Okay. So now the second part is, and that would be like the address that we have. The address we would share with somebody. So we would say, for example, I'm going to share this address with, um, with you. And like sharing, a, like sharing can, a Dropbox. Yes, but it's also almost like a bank account that has everything together, routing number and bank account together. And then when you have my address, you can actually put money in there. So you can just take my address and say, put it into your account and just say, I send $50 to that address. And can, push I the button and can I take you money out? Can I take money out You cannot take money out of my account. I know you would like to do this, but you cannot. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking about that. But okay. now here comes the kicker too. It's different now when we think about all these transactions in a decentralized version for a way for Bitcoin, for example, is everybody can see their transactions. So meaning like if I now say um, to you, what, is, what did you do? What transactions did you do today on your bank account? You can say, I'm not going to tell you. You could say, okay, I bought um, some bagels and some cheese and da, 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 and it was $55. Now, that would be with your bank. So you can see it, your bank can see it, but I can't see it. Now, for Bitcoin and some of the other ones, um, everybody can see it. So everybody can see your transaction. I can look it up right now on blockchain.info. I can go there and then just put the address in there for that address where you sent me the $50, if you would have sent it to me. And I can look it up and I can see who sent it, which would be your address. And you send it to me, what the amount was, what the fees were, et cetera, et cetera. I cannot see what you... If you purchase anything or your name, I cannot see that, but I can see all the information around the transaction. I see. Okay. All right. So, Carmen, who, when, so there's fees, fees connected with this. Who benefits from the fees? Where does that go? Um, the fees, the transaction fees are for, so they're different places. So, now if we think about cryptocurrency, first of all, you need to get, um, you have to get pretty much a wallet. Or you can go to an exchange. So you would go, for example, to Coinbase or there are a couple of other ones. And these exchanges, um, they are almost acting like a, they are almost like a bank. So meaning like every time that you make a net transaction, let's say in Coinbase, for Coinbase, for example, you would pretty much pay a fee. And then, of course, Coinbase would get that money. Plus, there would be a minus fee as well. So there's a larger fee in these exchanges, okay? So you have you pay for multiple things pretty much that are kind of like plopped into one, one thing. Now, if you are having your, if you create, let's say, you go to, um, you have your own wallet and you send it pretty much offline through the thing, then you pay a transaction fee, but you only pay the minus fee usually. Now, then the third thing is, if you go, for example, let's say we go to um, like different countries, um, because each of these, there's no, reg- there's no regulation or too much regulation out there for exchanges. Um, so meaning that an exchange, like I said before, is in South Africa, they could change for $2,000 that you get in Bitcoin. They could change another $2,000 as a fee. And then, of course, they would keep that money. 
So, and it's pretty much, think of the whole cryptocurrency market right now is almost like the wild, wild west. Sounds and like, you know, Carmen, we, excuse me for interrupting you, we need to take a quick, ba- really quick break. This is so interesting and so foreign to me. I want to come right back and talk to you some more. So we'll be right back. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. PI Magazine is the most respected magazine of the professional investigator. We feature stories and articles on current trends and issues, equipment reviews, tips, and practical advice. Don't miss the new and exciting year in PI Magazine. Subscribe today at PIMagazine.com. Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call one 800 350 C-A-L-I. For a national association, Francie's Choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. My guest today is Carmen Zygabin, or Zygabin, I guess it is. And he's an expert on cryptocurrency, and we're just talking about all the ins and outs and what cryptocurrency is. And now he's going to talk to us a little bit about how you get into the investigation of locating where this this money's going, or I guess it's not money, where the cryptocurrency is going. Carmen, take it away. Okay, taking it away now. Okay. okay. So <laughs> if you are if you are getting hired for a cryptocurrency case. So there's a couple of things you have to look at for it first. First of all is, um, of course, what kind of, what are the funds? So what is the cryptocurrency actually that was used? For example, was it Bitcoin, Ethereum, et cetera, et cetera. Um, number two is you want to ask to find out what the wallet was. So this is pretty much not where the cryptocurrency is being held, but where in some cases the keys are being held um, or, you know, where you can take ownership of that cryptocurrency. So, and wallets, and we call, we call them wallets. They're not really wallets, but I won't get too crazy with that. Let's just call them wallets. So cryptocurrency wallets, and we have them as hardware wallets, 
So, for example, where we have um, a Trezor or a Nano, for example, from Ledger. So there's two companies out there. There's a whole bunch of other companies out there, too. And they look like one looks like a USB stick, um, for example. So that would be something you want to know. The second thing is... Oh, so you look carry at that the with you. It would be like you carry your wallet yes. with you. Yes. So the person could carry, for example... Um, a whole bunch of them. We, let's let's use the example for the Trezor, for example. Um, the Trezor One. It's uh, pretty much. Or let's do the Nano Ledger. Nano Ledger looks like a USB stick. Um, you can carry it around with you, with you if you want to. Um, you can put the cryptocurrency on. Pretty much, kind of cryptocurrency on it, and you get a monomic um, key. So you get a. And it's called. It's a BIP thirty nine. And BIP thirty nine is a bunch. Think of it a bunch of words. So when somebody sets these up. These hardware wallets that you can carry around with you, they usually use a BIP39 monomic. And that, is a, and that can be 24 words or 12 words or 15 words. Now, let's say 24 words. So these 24 words are giving you access. So let's say you lose this thing, this hardware piece, and somebody smashed it or somebody steps on it. If you have the word, these 24 words, then you can recover that whole account with all of the money in there. Okay. Hmm. Wow. Now this this is called BIP thirty nine monomic, and so twenty four words. Words could be usage, urban, away, question, lot, things like this. Now the key is also that they have to be in the right order. So meaning like one through twenty four. If you mess it up, it's going to be hard to figure it out. Now the good thing is, for these words, when you sit there. And you think, okay, what could be the words? You won't be able to figure them out if you don't have any of them. But there are lists out there. So BIP39 is pretty much kind of like this protocol where it has all of the words in there. And there's um, the 2,048 words, I think, for English, for Chinese, for Spanish, for Korean, for French, for Italian, etc. Now, when you as a private investigator search or as a law enforcement officer searches for these things, then actually... Now, here, you don't have to be afraid anymore about technology because this is a real non-tech thing. You go the complete opposite. If I want to, for example, hide my cryptocurrency, I would never use um, a computer. So that would be number one. If I'm a criminal, I wouldn't use a computer. And let's say I have these words now that I use. um, I would hide these words. So a common or very popular hiding places, somebody would write down the words on a piece of paper then put it in a little plastic bag, then roll it. And then, you know, when you, where you have the kitchen cabinets, when you open these little hangers there, these things where you open the kitchen cabinets, where you pull them open, yeah. they would make it like they would, they would find ways that things that are empty inside, and then they would push it in there, for example. That would be one example where somebody would hide these words, okay? These monomic um, hmm. phrases or words in this case. Now, other examples of that. So... Here you have to think about what you want to find, really, if it's a real good criminal. You know, there are lazy ones and there are good ones. I mean, good ones that take it as a real career. You want to you wanna try to find it. It's most likely offline. So it can be, for example, another good place is the TV, the back of a TV, and you're going to use the Chinese menomic ones. I mean, in the Chinese, I have, um, I have 24 symbols. I can put them on a Chinese, I buy a Chinese TV for $500 at Walmart, and I engrave them on the back. Nobody ever will look there. Nobody ever will even know what it is. Huh. And you have them sitting right in there. And it could be a million bucks. Nobody would know. Now, another way would be putting it, for example, on the back of a microwave or on a pot or on a carpet. You know, like these little carpet runners that you have. 
Another yeah. one would be a good one is also pictures. So, for example, each of these words, make a picture on Photoshop or something like this, or buy a picture, put the word under it and put it into a frame and then hang it around in one room and hang it around in the order the words are going. That would be yes. another example. Wow. So the private investigator, when he looks for this, he doesn't, he doesn't really have to bother too much with the computer in the beginning. So most or likely, if he does a recovery, it's most likely somewhere else. So that's, that's number one. Then there are the foolish ones that, of course, use a computer, but um, the software for cryptocurrency in some cases is so bad, especially the desktop one, is um, let's say you log in and then you turn, turn, down the, turn off the computer, then you turn it on again, you restart it, and it will lock you in again automatically. Pretty much you're still in there and you can make a transfer. So meaning like if it's another party, if you're a forensics person, for example, it's not too hard to do. Now, the hardware wallets, they are harder to do, but then it depends. They are like, there's probably at least 50 different um, ones out there. And so the top two, which is the Trezor and the Nano, and the Trezor, I, I like the Trezor the best, actually. But um, for them, this will be a little bit harder. But, now here's a big but, there are exploits for them, too. So it means somebody can try to get into it. And most likely, it's like a 14-year-old that lives with his mother. So it's not like this old dude who sits somewhere on the computer. It's usually the kids that are the smartest ones on that stuff. Right. So right. They, they can use it, uh, lose it with that stuff, too. So if they are lucky, if a private investigator is lucky, he or she can find it, and um, when she finds, or he finds, for example, a hardware one, usually people will put the words on the back of it, they will put it in paper, and then usually a sheet of paper comes with it, and they will put a rubber around it. I know it's very lazy, but that's what people do. <laughs> if, it's a smarter criminal, if, if it's a smarter criminal, then they will hide the stuff. So meaning uh-huh. they will hide the words somewhere in the house, for example. It could be even in the car, on an engine. We have seen like five million places where you would not even think about. So if you, if your mother, for example, is great with solving puzzles, she would be the best investigator in any of these cases. It wouldn't be the guy who knows most about computers. It knows the. It's the one who can solve puzzles probably the best. Interesting. So, so where do you, Carmen? Where do you start? You start a case like this. So give me some steps. Again, I'm a visual person. I have to be able to see this in the step process. So. First, so if we, if they, let's say it's a, let's say it's like a, um, uh, if it would be for example, let, let I give you an easy example, a very basic one. If it's a kidnapping, you would, um, and this is going to happen more and more now with email. So somebody would send in, somebody would kidnap a person, then uh-huh. they would email, for example, to the parents. <coughs> we want um, eight bitcoins or twenty bitcoins or so, but they would use one of these no mailer ones. So meaning like. You send an email to it, you just write in there its domain whitehouse.gov or something like this, and it would show up at the other person's email like that. And there would be just a Bitcoin address in there. So now when you have that, then it's a problem, for example, because then you can't do much. If a person sends it from Google, for example, from a Gmail account, and even if it's like if you, even if you're in a country that is very slow in regards to, you know, getting a subpoena or a search warrant, then mm-hmm. you can just send them, for example, um, a tracking uh, a tracking code over there, send them an email back, and then at least get their IP address and then go from there. Or you can follow the money, for example, by using the blockchain. And then and the easiest one is actually going to, if it's Bitcoin, you would go to um, blockchain.info and then put the address in there and see if somebody actually took out the money and who did it, and then you can go from there. Now, another way, if you think about a recovery or a search for money, for example, so then you would pretty much try to go on the premises 
is first you would want to try to create a profile about that person. That would be number one. Look at it as social media as a tech, is it a tech person, a non-tech person. So social media, pretty much everything on online, I would create a profile about that person to find out more about that one person. If I can see transactions that they did and, you know, did they buy any, do they buy a lot of electronics usually or they don't? Um, are they good with, do they like to write, for example? Do they like to write stories or, you know, and things like very strange things that you wouldn't think about it because some mm-hmm. people would put, for example, they would write letters, letters to somebody and these letters would contain, contain, for example, the monomic um, phrases or the monomic words. Some actually would buy books, so they would have a whole bunch of books in the house, and each page, there would be a word in there for each book, and they would just remember the pages, they would write the page numbers down in the order the books are. So there are different things you would do, but you would start pretty much as first is, um, create, if you have the person, if you know kind of who it is, create a profile about that person. Number two is find out what cryptocurrencies they would be using if they use cryptocurrency. That would be number two because that's going to be important. Number so three how you, is how, then. How do you find that out? Oh, uh, you're going to have to see. You have to have a trail somewhere. Somewhere. So if it says, for example, the person, if it's like a, if it's like a transaction, for example, a scam or something, and somebody was sending, hey, I sent you fifty. Uh, I sent you half. A, I sent you fifty bitcoins or ten bitcoins every month, and you give me a million dollars, and kind of like these these scams for investors, for example. Right. Um, then you would know it already. So you would have to figure out how to get to that point where you know that if it's a cryptocurrency case, they will let you know right away if it was Bitcoin or if it was cryptocurrency in general, most of the cases will be Bitcoin. And the reason for that is Bitcoin is if I'm, for example, if I'm a drug dealer um, and I have a lot of cash and I want to convert it into crypto, I can go to a street dealer and the street dealer is going to take all of my cash. Let's say I have $100,000. I meet with that dealer on the street somewhere, give them $100,000, and he's going to give me crypto worth 80% of what I gave them or 70% what I gave him. Mm-hmm. So, but that crypto, most of the cases, it is Bitcoin because Bitcoin I can use almost anywhere. If you give me Monero or some of the other, you know, some of the other 2,600 cryptocurrencies, I might not be able to do too much with it. So I always want to have, I always want to have Bitcoin. So if you talk about a criminal case, most of the time it's Bitcoin. If it's an investment thing, if it's an investment fraud, for example, it could be a cryptocurrency that, you know, the people that defrauded that wanted to commit the fraud, they could have uh-huh. created their own cryptocurrency, for example. So it can be always different. It's very wild. And um, the subject is so you can't be really an expert in it because it's just so massive and it continuously changes. Mm, so a cryptocurrency too. company... Yeah, it changes all the time. So there's nothing you, you would have to keep up. And even if you read and learn 24-7, you will be still late and you will still not know everything. Well, I'm thinking, Carmen, that right now you should give, uh, provide uh, how you can be contacted because I, I pretty much guarantee you if I ever got a case that involved cryptocurrency, I'd be calling you and saying help. So why don't you give uh, how people can get in contact with you? Um, so you can contact me at, um, the easiest way is you can contact me, um, on our website. This is tomokodiscovery.com. This is T-O-M-O-K-O-D-I-S-C-O-V-E-R-I.com. So tomokodiscovery.com. And then if you, for example, you can use us as a consultant, but you can also learn how to do it. We do five-day classes. So we have some classes coming up in St. Petersburg. 
we do the foundation class, which is five days. And then after the foundation class, you will actually know already a lot. And then we do uh, a forensic class, which is another five days. So, for example, just imagine we have one on the 2nd of December. That is the um, foundation class. And then uh, on the 9th of December for five days, we have the forensic class. And then if you do these things, you can pretty much do it by yourself. You will know enough to be enough dangerous to not needing us, really. I mean, you can call us, but you don't really need us. Um, but if you need us, you can always call me on my cell phone. It is um, 727-273-4041. I repeat, it's 727-273-4041. Okay. Now, you also have this uh, uh, cryptographic evidence authentication uh, program. Yes. So we have a software. Um, it's Tomoko Discovery. And what it does is it's kind of like it creates, so if you go online, you find something on social media, and if it's a civil case, you can't get a search warrant, of course. Now, you could make pretty much, it takes a screen capture and takes the source code and then wraps around the SHA-256 cryptographic hash around it. So you can use it as evidence in court. And um, you, can, you can pretty much go to our website, tomokodiscovery.com, and then also get it there. And um, we can create a code, and then you can have it for the first two months for free. And the code would be the name of this radio show. But don't do it today because we have to create the code first. <laughs> That's great. Uh, I'm going to have to try it just to see what's going on. This is am- amazing. I, this, is, uh, this is such a field that I absolutely know nothing about. Uh, I really appreciate uh, all the information you're giving here, Carmen. It's, it's uh Really enlightening. Thank you. I appreciate it. So you're welcome. You um, take care. Bye bye. Don't leave yet. <laughs> oh no. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Don't leave yet. So uh, I just wanted to get in to a little bit. Uh, uh, you interviewed this man in South Africa, Johan Duploy. You really did your homework with the research, huh? <laughs> oh my. Okay. So and I and I just want to. Uh, I just want you to talk a little bit about that and how that came about. Um, so, yes, so I started working with the um, South African police force, I think, two or three years ago. And um, I met Johan there pretty much. And then we started working together on cases and on things like this. And Johan is like, he's 67 years old. And he, he is, uh, yeah, he's a very good investigator. He's a very stubborn man, too. Um, and a little bit grumpy as well. So when I started working, I did classes over there. I did some of the classes with him together, and we went to, um, where was it? We were in Johannesburg and then in Cape Town. And if you have never been in South Africa, South Africa is um, kind of like this strange mix between beauty and violence. So on one side, it's so beautiful there, you would say, wow, I want to move here. On the other hand, if you drive your car and you stop at a red light, they might cut your throat. So it's kind of like they have some issues there. But, you know, <laughs> very beautiful. And that's actually where we learned also a lot in regards to not just cryptocurrency, but also casework, because there are so many cases and it's so violent in there. Um, and then Johan, he has, um, he has a trading facility in Johannesburg, um, South Africa, where we go sometimes and train over there. And then he works with us on cases. And then also his son works with us on forensics. So, and we, have, we started working now with them together for yeah, roughly two years, maybe. And so we're having a forensic lab also in South Africa in Johannesburg. But we're going, if we have to go somewhere, so some law enforcement agencies will hire us for consulting, then we would go pretty much there 
and then, you know, it could be UK or France or wherever, and then would bring all our stuff over there and work from there. Most, most of the time they require this. But yeah, Johan really uh, is an investigator, pretty much like, and he's, since he is older, he tries to always keep up. So he is the one who goes to these parts and who tries to learn also always about crypt, uh, cryptography, about um, social media, cryptocurrencies, etc. So and he's, he's doing very well with that. And I would suggest this also for some of the older private investigators maybe that are, that are saying, oops, um, I'm not very good with technology because there's a lot of no-tech stuff in there too. And so they could actually excel in these things as well. And maybe even better than the ones that are always sitting on the computer. Right, right. Interesting. So are, are a lot of agencies, law enforcement agencies around the world, are they setting up uh, cryptocurrency uh, departments or specialists that are actually involved, getting involved in this? This is becoming so prevalent. Yeah, right now it is more and more. So I would say some of the countries like UK and some of the European countries are UK, um, I would say Australia and Hong Kong. Australia is very advanced. So we're working with one lady over there and they're really doing good. So in regards to policies and everything, it starts off really with the policies. And that's the big, big thing there. So it's not a real department, but they have to have a policy, meaning because the officer, let's say it could be even patrol officer, but let's say they do, uh, they execute a search warrant um, in a, at a drug house, for example, usually they would not even think about cryptocurrency. Now they start thinking about it. And now mm-hmm. pretty much all these people have to be trained because when they go on site, it's one thing is these amounts, it's not usually not $50, but it goes into the millions and hundreds of millions. So mm-hmm. Hong Kong, for example, the Hong Kong police force, they are changing. They're trying to prepare more and more for cryptocurrency cases. So they don't have a lot of violent crime, for example. So everything is kind of like going towards cryptocurrency over there. The UK, the same. The United States is a slow starter, but we're getting slowly there too. So we train some folks from the DEA, for example, who are now, you know, when they do their drug raid, they go in there and they're actually going to look now for cryptocurrency. But um, if I think about the Australians and some of the other ones, they're making millions and millions of dollars they, they, they get out of that. I mean, like, really, this is what, when, when, when they do a transfer, it's millions and millions of dollars. It's not like $50 or so. So the department or agency actually generates a lot of revenue because most of these people actually give <laughs> So they don't have to give a lot of that back. The secret is really like for law enforcement or so the, the, the importance is it starts with policy. And the policy means uh, covering, for example, who, who, how, to, how, to get the, how to do the transfer, transfer. So a transfer, for example, for law enforcement would be that the law enforcement agency and then even the department or the group that works on, you know, the, that team that works on it, they have their own wallet, for example. And then what they would do is they go on the scene. So let's say they do a search warrant. They go on there. They find the cryptocurrency. Now they have to do the transfer immediately. They cannot wait. So they have to do right away. They have to do a transfer before somebody else can steal it. Because usually not one, just one person has the monomic words. Somebody else has the monomic words and the password maybe. So if you right. have them as a law enforcement officer, you have to get it done right away. And you can't make any mistakes, so the money is not gone. Now, that's number one. And after you did the transfer, and it's in the, in, in, in the agency wallet, for example, then the takeout. So you're not supposed to exchange it to dollar because it's still not, it's not the money of the, of the law enforcement agency. Still, because the person might not be guilty in this case. Now, that's uh-huh. another thing. Now, the third thing is um, security. 
So when we talk about cryptocurrency, if we think about the bank robbery, how much do they steal? Usually 30,000, maybe 100 if it's a really, really good day. And cryptocurrency, some of these things that they find are 100 and $200 million. We worked on a $200 million case. I can still not believe it. It's so much money that is there usually that everybody gets kind of weak. And so some law enforcement officers would have taken, in some cases, some money already. Now, to avoid that, they're starting to use a multi-sig wallet. So multi-sig means multi-signature. means, for example, I'm the one who is doing the transfer. Now I'm on the scene. I'm transferring the money over there into our agency wallet. But for somebody to take it out, I would have to sign off on it. My sergeant has to sign off it, and the captain has to sign off it. And maybe even the police chief has to sign off on it. If we all four sign off on it, then the money can be transferred or exchanged. If not, then it's not, there's no exchange happening or no transfer happening. And that's, that's one of the key things, too. And most of them doing this with our software. So when they go and do the transfer, they're logging into Tomoko Discovery. Then through Tomoko Discovery, has like a browser in there. And then they start the desktop recording. And they pretty much record whatever they do there. And it's all recorded in one string. And then they do the transfer. And then later on, they have the files so that they can prove, okay, we took that and that money out. It was that and that amount at that time, and, you know, so there's proof of that they didn't feel anything. This is just amazing. Carmen, thank you so much for sharing all this knowledge with us. I'm, um, you've just given me a whole lot of th- to think about. I hope uh, the people that are listening feel the same way. I appreciate you being on the show. Um, I would like to take one of your classes one time, so you may be, you may see me show up one day. <laughs> but we're, we're actually at the end of our hour. I know you didn't think it was uh, you're going to be able to talk enough for an hour, but we're at the end of our hour, and there's still so much more to talk about. So thank you so much again. Um, appreciate you being on the show. And join me again next week, folks, when we declassify real stories that help investigation. It's PIS Declassified. I'm Francie Kaler. Thanks so much for listening, and thanks, Carmen. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. You've been listening to P.I.'s Declassified with your host, Francie Kaler. Tune in every Thursday at noon Eastern Time. That's 9 a.m. for you West Coast listeners. P.I.'s Declassified explores stories of deceit, mystery, and detectives unraveling the truth. Every Thursday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific Time, here on the Voice America Variety Channel. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program.